It is a bit overwhelming to stand up here this morning and look out at all of your faces uh, and see you again. It feels like we've been gone much longer than we actually have, um, but to stare at you guys and be encouraged by all of your encouragements this morning, I'm just so grateful to have this privilege to stand up here before you and bring the word of God. The Woods family has missed Grace Covenant Church over these last few weeks. One thing that sabbatical really cemented in us was the amazing family of God that we have here at GCC. I want to thank you all for your encouraging cards, your gifts, and your prayers during this time. Uh, that was so encouraging to Courtney and I and to our, and to our kiddos. Just to see your love and your faithfulness uh, to our family was overwhelming. This morning, I want us to consider this idea of faithfulness, and I want to begin by helping us understand what it isn't. We're going to look at a quote from a man named A.W. Pink. He says this, Unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is, with rare exceptions, no longer his bond. In the social world, marital infidelity abounds on every hand. The sacred bonds of wedlock are broken with as little regard as discarding an old garment. In the ecclesiastical realm, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth have no scruples about attacking and denying it. Nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin. How many ways have we been unfaithful to Christ? and to the light and privileges which God has entrusted to us. How refreshing then, and how blessed, to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin, and behold, one who is faithful, faithful in all things, faithful at all times. Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah 25? Now, typically when I'm up here, you're hearing a psalm, so this morning is a little different for me to be in Isaiah, but I think you'll see that through these two books, there'll be a lot of similarities and a lot of encouragements. So Isaiah 25 is where we will be at this morning. Hear the word of God. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make, all, make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Hear the word of God for you this morning, Christian. Praise be to God for his word. 
Now, as we begin, uh, we have not spent a lot of time in Isaiah, if any, and so there's a little bit of background that we need to do. As we look at Isaiah, we see that he is a prophet in the Old Testament. Specifically, he is a prophet that's speaking to the people in Judah. Now, if you're looking for a historical background, you can go to 2 Kings, and you'll see Isaiah's name brought up, and you'll see his midst, uh, him in the midst of this historical narrative that is given us in 2 Kings. But what you'll also draw your attention to during this time in Isaiah is the fact that there is um, stress, there is fear being poured into the people of Judah because there are these two powers that are at play, kind of as God's redemptive plan is being played out. There are these two strong powers that we find, the strong power of Assyria and the strong power of Egypt. And all of this is putting pressure on the people of Judah. Are they going to look to these people uh, for help? Are they going to look to these people for salvation? Or are they going to look to the faithful God of all time to help them? That is where the people of Judah find themselves or find themselves as Isaiah is going to be preaching these messages. So we have that in the background, something that I think we can maybe feel as sojourners in this world, a little bit of, of empathy and sympathy towards uh, as we feel the pressures of our culture beating down on us. But Isaiah 25 begins, and verse 1 is, is so foundational for how we're going to to work through the other 12 verses. In fact, uh, we are going to break this up into a few different ways. We're going to break it up into verse 1, which I'll call plans formed of old, and then we're going to move into uh, verses 3 through 5, which are going to be judgment and glory. Then we're going to move to verses 6 through 9, which will be salvation for God's people, and then we'll move towards the end Um, in in the last three verses, which will be kingdom and judgment. And these are themes that that keep going and keep flowing throughout this entire chapter of Isaiah. And so we begin then with plans formed of old. Note the word that is used in the very beginning of chapter 25. The very first word is, O Lord, in all caps. Now, if you've heard me preach through the Psalter, you'll know that when that word is in all caps, it's pointing us to what? The covenantal name of God. So we look at, O Lord, and that means Yahweh. And that's what the people would call on as the covenantal name of God. Now, why would they use the covenantal name? Because they needed to be reminded of the covenants of God. And God wanted them to know, they wanted him, them to remember his covenant from the very beginning, what God has been doing. And so they use the word, or Isaiah uses the word, O Lord. So he says, Yahweh. And then he says, you are my God. So he points to this covenantal reality and then he makes it personal by saying, Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. We're going to get back to the exalting and praising of uh, his name. But we move to, for you have done wonderful things. Wonderful things that the Lord God has done. Now, When you look at the word wonderful, I want you to realize that in the Hebrew, it's actually bringing out a supernatural connotation. So it's not just like, oh man, you're so wonderful. You're the most wonderful person, right? No, people people can be good and you can encourage each other by calling each other good. But this idea of wonderful is supernatural. Meaning that when Isaiah is saying, O Lord, the covenantal name of God, and then he's saying, you have done wonderful things. He's pointing back to the supernatural. He's pointing back to the fact that God has brought the people of Israel out of captivity and slavery in Israel and brought them to a promised land, something only this wonderful covenantal God can do. He's written down the Ten Commandments on stone tablets, right? He he has shown himself to his people. He has done wonderful things. And then he uses this phrase that's just so awesome to spend time thinking about. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old. Now that is what we need to sit and pause and reflect on. What is Isaiah doing? Now, Isaiah is a prophet. So Isaiah is pointing towards the future. 
But Isaiah is doing that in the midst of these people. He's trying to wake them up. Don't look to other worldly or, or other people to try to save you. Look to the faithful God. Remember his wonderful deeds. Remember his plans formed of old. Now, we have the entire scripture opened up to us, right? Isaiah didn't have that in his time, but as he's pointing to these wonderful plans, we can see these wonderful plans and how they've unfolded in scripture. Turn in your Bible, if you have it, to Genesis 3, 15. I go back to Genesis a lot, but it's because it's foundational for us to understand the story of God. We have to get the garden right in order to understand how the rest of history, rest of redemptive history plays itself out. Now you guys will know in Genesis 3, this is where the fall of man happens. This is where Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They, they have become idolatrous, thinking that they are better than God. They know better than God. They've listened to revelation outside of God's revelation in the serpent. And then God calls down these judgments on Adam and Eve and the serpent. And then in verse 15, we read this really interesting thing. We read as God is calling the judgment down on the serpent, he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we've gone over this before, but theologians call this the first gospel. This is the first gospel being revealed. This is our first tidbit to the plans formed of old. This is God's plan formed of old that this seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But then we continue, and in fact, I think we're gonna be going back to Ephesians quite a bit, so if you know where that is in your Bible, maybe keep your finger in there or put one of those nifty little things to hold your spot uh, because we're gonna keep going back to Ephesians as we work through this today. But these plans formed of old. Now, it's almost like Brandon preached my entire sermon in his prayer. It was beautiful. But he was picking up on where I was going. And, and this is because we both have the same Holy Spirit, right? That's, that's helping us understand what the Scripture is saying. But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10 is going to give us another insight into the plans formed from old. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? To the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I want you to note here that the idea of plans, purposes, will, decree, all of those things are unpacking the word plans formed of old. These are the same words. This is the same idea that is being packed into this. So these plans formed of old that Isaiah is, is prophesying, he's pointing his people to, are going to be revealed to us. But as we keep going through Isaiah 25, it is hard not to see this redemptive history play its way all the way through. In fact, Christ picks up on this same idea in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we read of Christ putting this same plan together and in fact talking about how this plan will be together. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. And if I'm going too fast, just write these down and, and then read them together as a family or by yourself at lunch this afternoon. So John chapter 6 Verse 37 through 40 reads this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, a plan formed of old. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This, friends, is the plan formed of old. Now, Isaiah, thank you, God. Praise be to God. Isaiah may have not known this in its full unpacking, but what we see in Isaiah 25 in these plans formed of old is what um, dusty, I don't think they're dusty, I think they're cool, old dead theologians would call the covenant of redemption. So this is the covenant made before the foundation of the world between father and son to redeem a people. So this is what Isaiah is, is reminding the people. He's saying, remember Yahweh, the covenantal God. Remember this Yahweh who has done all of these wondrous deeds, plans formed of old. And then how does he describe these plans? This is so juicy. How does he describe these plans that are formed of old? Faithful and sure. Now that's the title of your sermon this morning because this is the main point that our covenantal God is always faithful and he's always sure. Now, different translations, you'll read this and it won't say faithful and sure. It'll, it'll say um, that he's always faithful and true or always faithful, perfectly faithful. Now, if you are trying to first unpack, well, well what does faithful even mean? When we look at this, in the Hebrew, uh, it means firm, steadfast, or full of fidelity. Now, if we look at faithful in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, we read, faithful implies unswerving adherence to a person or thing or to the oath or promise by which a tie was contracted. Now, that's really interesting because when we look at a covenant, we understand that this is an oath, a contract, between two people. And we see in this covenant that there is a contract, there is an oath being made between our God and us. This covenant, this covenantal God who, who stoops down into time and history to a people and promises them salvation. Let's go back to A.W. Pink to help us again with unpacking this idea of faithfulness. He, he goes to Psalm 36.5 which we've heard from this pulpit. And it reads this, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness unto the clouds. And then he comments on that saying, Far above all finite comprehension is the unchanging faithfulness of God. Everything about God is great, vast, incomparable. He never forgets. He never fails. He never falters. He never forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered. Every engagement of covenant or threatening, he will make good. For God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall not make it good? Therefore, should believers exclaim, his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Friends, do you understand that this morning? I mean, we're still in verse one. <laughs> and we're thinking about the faithfulness of God. That the faithfulness of God, unlike the faithfulness that we experience in everyday life, will never falter. His promises that he has made are from old. And they have been his plans from before the foundations of the earth. And he will never falter. He will never swerve. He doesn't have a plan B. He's never set back on his heels saying, oh no, because this is happening in the world right now, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. No, he is always faithful, always sure. Now, I, I like the idea of faithful and sure, but the Hebrew actually says perfectly faithful. It's the only time it's ever used in the Old Testament. And it's used right here to, to make this emphatic. God is faithful. He is perfectly faithful to his plans of old. Something that you and I could never be. We can never be perfectly faithful. 
but he moves on. He moves from here, he lays this beautiful foundation, and then we get into God's judgment being poured out. Now, think about why this would be so important to these people. They are feeling the pressures. They're feeling that they're weak, and they're seeing these strong superpowers, and they're going, oh no, man, we've got to make a decision here. Are we going to side with these people? Are we going to side with these people? We're seeing what's happened to Israel uh, below us. It doesn't look good. What do we do? And so they're freaking out. And Isaiah is trying to remind them, no, no, remember who your God is. He will pour judgment out on these superpowers around you. In fact, those huge, beautiful cities will be a heap. They'll be a ruin. These, these, these fortified cities, these strong peoples, they're not outside of God's control. In fact, he says the ruthless will be put down. This is pointing to the end. Remember, he's a prophet. He's telling his people, no, 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 look to the future, look to the end. God's plans will always come to fruition. Have faith in the faithful one. Don't have faith in these unfaithful people who don't care about you, they don't care about the covenant. Have faith in God. He keeps pointing them to God because God's judgment of the wicked nations People uh, who are strong and ruthless, he's going to put them down. In fact, not only is he going to put them down, but in so doing, we see something even more beautiful. His plans from old happening again. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. City of ruthless, cities of ruthless nations will fear you. What is this? What's, what's strong peoples glorifying God and ruthless nations fearing the one true God. This isn't Judah. This isn't Israel. These are outside people looking to the one true God of the universe through his judgment coming to God, coming to believe in him. Well, what does that mean? Well, we are just seeing a glimpse of God's redemptive plan of bringing in people outside of, of what everyone would have thought of back then as God's covenantal people. He's bringing in the Gentiles. Go to Ephesians 3. I told you, keep a finger there because we're, we're going to go back. Ephesians chapter 3, we read this in verses 1 through 6. In fact, when you're trying to think, well, what are his plans formed of old, Andrew? We're getting little glimpses here and there. We're getting a little taste, but, but what is his plan? Well, we have all of God's word at our fingertips, and we can tell you what was God's plan, planned, formed from old. This is what we read when Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus. He said, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what God's plan has always been. In fact, Abraham's promise that was given to him did it not say he would be a blessing to all nations. We see that God's plan was to gather a people to himself. And it's through God's judgment that there will be glory. But that's not all that we see. Brandon had mentioned that God is a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. This is Isaiah just trying to help them wake up. Friends, I know it's hard. I know you're experiencing rough things and you're scared because Assyria is crazy strong and so is Egypt and, and we've already been there and we don't want to go back there. But the people want to. They want to go back to the comforts of old. They want to go back to what they've known and stay there and, and, and maybe have a, have a glimpse of safety instead of trusting in God and his faithful plans. But then we see God's promise, friends, that should be a wonderful encouragement this morning. God's promise of his salvation for his people. I'm going to read these verses again because they are so beautiful. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, we see three things happening here in the salvation that God provides for his people. Number one, we see a messianic feast. When you read of these beautiful things happening on this mountain, and and just take a mental note, Andrew will get back to mountain, and if I skip it, yell at me before I finish because I want to make sure we get back to this idea of mountain. But, But this idea of the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples on this mountain or in the city of God, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples this rich and beautiful feast. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard of this feast, even in the Old Testament. You can go back to the law. And what does the law do? It points us back to these wonderful feasts that the people are supposed to do and these feasts that they gather and they have and and these new moons and all of these things that they do. All that is, is that it's pointing to the future. It's not this law that they have to rigidly keep. It's pointing to the future feast at the end in the redemption of God with all of his people. And we see it in Isaiah. And one place that we see it so richly is in Psalm 23. Psalm 23, speaking of of the shepherd who will shepherd his people. And we've preached that, we've taught through that. It's Christ, it's Christ who is the wonderful shepherd, the great shepherd who leads us through all these things. But in verse five, we read, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We see this beautiful feast that is prepared for him amidst all his enemies, amidst uh, these, these strong and ruthless nations. We see this feast that will happen for the people of God. Can you imagine um, being in a place where you are, are fearful of your life 24-7? You're seeing these wicked kings come through like Ahaz, and you're just wondering, when is it going to happen? When are we going to be destroyed? And you uh, have a prophet come and tell you, don't worry. There will be a day when you have this rich feast with your Lord on the mountain. It will be secure You won't have to worry about these ruthless nations and cities around you. All you'll have to worry about is this beautiful feast that you get to enjoy with all the peoples from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Hebrews 12 actually picks up on this idea, and I'm sure Pastor Joel will be okay with me preaching here. We've got a while before we get to Hebrews 12, so you'll forget what I've said by then. But Hebrews 12, starting in verse 22, says this, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. That's important. Almost underline that in your Bible. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and into innumerable angels and festal gathering. This is this feast, this huge feast that's happening. There's angels everywhere. It's festive. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We see this beautiful feast that is being prepared for us, this feast that is for all of God's people, this feast made capable by the blood of the lamb, which we'll get to in a second. But I'm not done going and talking about this feast. There's one more, well, there's more than one, but there's one other place that's even more beautiful, and it's in Revelation chapter 19. And in fact, in your Bibles, you might even have a header above it that's going to say, talking about the marriage supper of the lamb. Verses 6 through 9 says this, 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, we are seeing a picture. We are seeing a, a, a little insight into the heavenly glory of what will happen and the salvation of God's people. So we see this, this little insight that Isaiah is giving the people who, who are terrified about what's happening around them, who, who need to be reminded, don't, don't think of these feasts that you might have with these people who will offer you a treaty. Think of the one true God of the universe. Your cup will overflow. Don't, don't go to these people. And then we get what I've entitled, what John Owen called the death of death. Ooh, nothing sweeter than what we read in these next few verses. He will swallow up death forever. And this death was a covering over all peoples, right? That's what it says in the verse right before it. It covers everyone. That's because of what happened in Genesis 3 and the death that was brought in by Adam in his sinfulness. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even every one of you and me in this room, we have all fallen short. And so even though these people were fearing death, they were fearing, oh, are we going to be taken away into captivity? Are we going to be massacred by these oncoming superpowers? What will happen to us? Isaiah reminds him, from the mountain has come someone who has swallowed up death forever. Now, there's a verse that actually talks about this very thing. And you can, you can search through your Bible, talking about swallowing up death, which I did over this week, trying to really dig in and, and make sure I'm not just jumping to conclusions. But there's one place that talks about this. One place that this is quoted, and you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A lot of New Testament application here. 1 Corinthians. Got a little lost there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 15, or verses 50 through 58. Finally, I got there. All right. Here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The death or the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And why? Why is your labor not in vain? Because this is a plan formed of old, faithfully, perfectly faithful. So when we read of the swallowing of death, we read of God's plan to take away the sins of his people so that they can come to this marriage feast and dwell with their God. In fact, Isaiah 24 talks about the righteous one, the Messiah, who will be there on Mount Zion, the holy Jerusalem. 
it's too good not to look back at the prophets and be encouraged deep down in your soul about what God is doing. And then, if the people of Israel or uh, Judah could not be more encouraged, he tells them, and God will wipe away every tear from every eye. Don't we long for that? The day where we have struggled and the sins that we wish we could put to death, but still come and nag us. Aren't you ready for your tears that you've poured over those things to be wiped away by the righteous one? Aren't you ready from all the suffering you've endured throughout your life, whatever it's been, however it's happened, that your God, the righteous one, would come and he would wipe away the tears off your cheek? Have you thought about that when you wipe away the tears of your children and you tell them that it'll be okay? And just think about the righteous God of the universe who will hold your face like a child and he'll wipe away your tears. I long for that day. Revelation 7 and 24, talk about that day. Be encouraged by it this afternoon. Go and, and think about it and, and just meditate on it. But, but there's a third thing he does. There's a third thing that God does in this beautiful picture of salvation, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb, the, the death of death as he conquers and, and, and he does away with the curse, as he fulfills his promise made in Genesis 3.15. There's another thing that he does. He actually brings salvation to his people. He's telling them, friends, look. God will bring you salvation. Trust in him. We will say on that day, behold, this is our God. And so he's actually, he's actually telling the people here of Judah, wait, wait, for he will save us. For this is the Lord. This is the covenantal God who makes sure of his covenants. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, now, up until this point, I, I want to ask you a question. What have the people of Judah done to secure salvation? What have they done? I'll give you a hint. Nothing. What have you done to secure salvation? I'm going to give you a hint. Nothing. It is all God's beautiful plan of old his wonderful supernatural deeds that no one can do. It's his plans formed of old that are faithful, perfectly faithful to save his people, to bring them to the feast, to swallow death forever. Oh, friends, would you be encouraged this morning as Isaiah was crying to his people to be encouraged, to be reminded of this salvation that is only brought from the Lord. In fact, what did he actually call the people to do? What did Isaiah tell them to do? Did he tell them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Did he tell them, obey the law perfectly? No, he told them to wait. Which is a position of weakness. Wait and trust the faithful God. Allow him to show you his perfectly faithful plans. The work is done by God, not the people. And then he moves into the last three verses that talk about more judgment, but also his kingdom. Now, we see this really clearly, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Now, mountain has been referred to three times already in this chapter. It starts in verse 6, and then it goes to verse 7, and then it ends here in verse 10. But this idea of mountain in the Old Testament, if you are thinking about biblical themes, this idea of mountain is a strong place, and it's also the kingdom of God. Because it's this place that's an impenetrable fortress. And he, he shows us that, and he contrasts that with the fortified walls that are being laid down into the dust. These strong nations that are around them, like Assyria and Egypt, and then he just mentions, he's going to, Moab. They're going to be like a dunghill compared to the mountain of God. In fact, he says, the hand of God rests on this mountain. 
meaning this is where God will be with his people in his kingdom. Now Isaiah 24 talks about this mountain, and it calls it Mount Zion, Jerusalem. In fact, this, this chapter that precedes us is a chapter calling down judgment on the whole world. And then at the end of this judgment on the whole world where God will punish all these people, it talks about how the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. This is a picture of the kingdom to come, the kingdom of God. We see this beautiful mountain representing the kingdom that will be established in the end. Right now, the kingdom, as we know, as New Testament believers, has been inaugurated in the coming of Christ, the coming of the king. He came, he preached, and he conquered and swallowed up death on behalf of those that would believe in him. The king has come, the kingdom's been inaugurated, but the kingdom is not consummated until he comes back. And we see this beautiful mountain, and we are with our God in that kingdom where he'll rule perfectly forever. Now note that in this ruling of the kingdom, resting on the mountain, and what we have previously in our context in Isaiah 24, we have the fact that Moab, this strong, prideful city, will be trampled down like straw on a dunghill. Now that's gross uh, if you think about it. Okay, it's okay. We can say it. The kids were thinking it already. Okay, they were thinking, they were laughing about the dunghill, um, and maybe you were too. But the fact is, it's to show the contrast. A high, holy mountain where God reigns and then poop of animals where the other cities will be forever. They will be laid low. That's how humiliating these other kingdoms will be. The hand of God rests in his kingdom and then you can think the foot of God tramples down these cities, these fortified, strong, prideful cities. And as his foot tramples down, we have this poetic picture of Moab, a strong and prideful people trying to escape. I had to study this because I didn't get, what is he talking about? About hands like swimmers. What is he saying, like swimming in the dunghill? That seems weird. I'm not picking up on what's happening here. But what we're trying to, sh- or what Isaiah is trying to show you is that Moab is so prideful As this judgment is pouring down, they're trying to escape. They're saying, I I got this. I'm I'm going to escape. I know how how well uh, equipped I am for this. I'm just going to swim out of it. I'm going to put my hands out. I'm going to make things secure. It'll be okay. And no, it won't. In the end, for all who are prideful, they will be laid low. So low, in fact, that they will be laid into the dust because that's where we all will return. Because we have another certainty, another thing that is faithful and sure is that we all one day will face death. Death will always come. Now as we've we've worked through Isaiah 25 um, briefly, you might not think briefly, but as we've worked through Isaiah 25 briefly, I I wanna bring up a few things. Amidst the chaos of our lives, the the cultural degradation, the sufferings and betrayals, the Lord will always be faithful and sure. Because his plans from old to swallow death, or his plans from old are to, to swallow death and bring salvation to his people. So I want you to see that this plan actually connects us to the covenant of redemption. As we look at God's plans formed of old, faithful, ensure we can go all the way back to before the foundations of the earth. But then this plan, formed of old, also points us to the fruit of the gospel, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It points us to Christ's accomplished work on the cross as he died for our sins, as he conquered death for us, as he swallowed it up. And then it also points us to the eschaton, or the end, and foreign nations being trampled and the Lord ruling from Mount Zion. So, I I keep getting them mixed up because it's Isaiah and Israel and Judah. I'm getting them all together. But as Judah, or as Isaiah's talking to Judah, 
okay? Just think of this. He's trying to help them amidst the chaos to remember God is faithful to his covenantal plans of old, so faithful that he will judge the nations and bring them to dust, and he will provide salvation to his people. He's going to swallow up death. He's going to prepare you a wedding supper of the lamb of salvation and provide a kingdom that he will eternally reside in and provide safety and security for his people. Now, is that something that you long for? I want to bring two sets of application and then we'll be done. For the non-Christian, I know you're in here this morning. It's okay, I'm glad you're here. In fact, I'm so thankful that you're here. If you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I want you to ask a question, or I want to ask you a question. What do you describe in your life that's faithful and sure? The reason why I want to ask you this question is because if you don't have Christ, surely you're holding on to something to bring you meaning and identity whether it be your spouse, your family, your friendships, your job, maybe your intellect. Maybe it's your beauty or your strength. But all, all these things, are they faithful or secure or sure? What we read in the beginning is marriages end in divorce. Tragedy strikes families. Friendships end in betrayal. Jobs find younger, smarter, better workers. Intellects can be devoured by disease. Beauty eventually fades and strength deteriorates. All these things that we naturally rely on and put our faith in being a sure thing are perishing. In fact, they reveal to us that we live in a broken world that points to the only sure thing death. This morning, I hope you have realized the deceitfulness of your identity and have heard of a mighty God whose plans are from old and who is always faithful and the only sure thing. This faithful God knew that you would not be able to fulfill his righteous law. So before the foundations of the earth, planned your salvation through Christ. This Christ who would come and perfectly fulfill the law and in doing so swallow death through his perfect righteousness to God's law and his obedience to die on the cross for the sins of sinner. In so doing, Christ saved us from the surety and faithfulness of death and has provided us everlasting life. All Christ bids you to do this morning is to turn from your faith in the unstable, the perishable, and to put your faith in the sure, wonderful work of Christ. Christian, you too have application this morning. I'm going to give you three points of application. Number one is remember. God is always faithful, perfectly faithful. We must remember being sojourners in a fallen world and a fallen land that although the hot breath, as Isaiah said, of the culture is blowing at us, that God is not shaken. He's not working on another plan He's not waiting for you to finally conquer the enemy for him. No, his plans were formed of old. And they are faithful and sure. And he has done the work. So as you tremble, or as you maybe get caught up in your favorite blog, or your favorite podcast, or your favorite pundit, as you are getting swept away by them, remember, don't be like Judah. Remember, God is always faithful, perfectly faithful. Those other things will let you down. God will never let you down. Your second point is wait. Ha <laughs> Had to get wait in there. Uh, we were in the Psalms, and Psalms is always talking about waiting. So longingly, though, I want you to longingly wait for the Lord. Remember these wondrous deeds are supernatural. Remember the wondrous deeds of, of God swallowing up death on your behalf. And wait, wait for the day that you will be on Mount Zion with the Lord where he will perfectly rule for all eternity. I mean, this is your practical application this morning is to literally wait for heaven, to long for heaven, to long for the feast where you will be with Christ 
and you will be with your loved ones who have gone before you if they were believers in Christ. Can you imagine that table? Can you imagine the table that will be set with Christ? I mean, your eyes will just be blown away as you stare upon your Savior, and then all of the rest of the people who have gone before who are praising the one true God. Would you meditate on that? Would you talk about it here? Would you talk about longing to be with Christ? Longing to be there? Would you encourage one another with heaven? I just wonder how much do we actually do that? How much do we actually look forward to heaven and talk about it? And that be an encouragement to one another. I want you to notice that the majority of this entire chapter that we've read is what God is doing. The only thing that the people of God have been called to do are to wait and to praise God. And that brings me to my third point. So you are to remember, you are to wait, and you are to praise. This chapter begins with Isaiah praising God and exalting Him. What better way to remind yourself to help you wait than singing of the wonderful deeds of the Lord. What better way to renew your mind amidst the sufferings, the betrayals, the chaos, than to sing and to praise the one who is always faithful, perfectly faithful. Let's pray. O God, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that from before the foundations of the earth, you had a plan to redeem a people unto yourself, a plan that we could not work on our own accord, a plan that you brought about by your faithfulness, by the faithfulness of Father and Son from before the foundations agreeing on the plan of salvation. This covenant of grace that has been brought to the people that we could not fulfill, that Christ fulfills on our behalf, that we would rejoice in it that we would not grow weary in our sufferings, God, that we would not grow weary as the culture fades, but that we would longingly wait and remember and praise you, that we would think of heaven, think of the delights of a world that is not corrupt, but that is perfectly ruled by you. As we longingly wait for heaven, to sit and eat and not worry about providing for ourselves because you have abundantly provided. You have abundantly given us security. You have abundantly saved your people from death. Father, help us long for your coming. Help us long for the second coming of Christ as he ushers in, as he brings about the consummation of the kingdom of God. In Christ's name do we pray this, amen.